Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Uh, One Church TO, we're headed into a brand new series. Uh, we're headed into a brand new series right now, and I want to start by asking you a simple question. If somebody approached you and asked you to describe me to, to them, what words would you come up with? Now, likely the words you would use to describe me would kind of be associated with our relationship, how we might relate to one another. You might describe me by what I do. You might say, oh, Jonathan Smith, oh, he's my pastor at One Church Steel. Or you might describe me by how I look. You might say, oh, Jonathan, he's the guy with no hair and he's like really pale, like shockingly pale, like dip him into sunscreen before he leaves the house pale. <laughs> or maybe you'll describe me by my gender or my age, and you might say, he's, well, he's a middle-aged male. Uh, you could describe me by maybe our relationship. If you're a family member, you might, you might partner Shelly or my children, you might call me a, a, a dad or a father. Or maybe if we've known each other for a lot of years, you might describe me as your friend. There's also other descriptions. You might use something called your opinion of me. Maybe you've been building an opinion of me from the little bit of moments you've seen me along the way. And so you build a, a kind of a, an idea of who I am. And somebody asks you, well, who is Jonathan Smith? Could you describe him to me? Now, I know you'd say this. Well, he's amazing. He's so funny. He's incredible. I, I realize there are other opinions of me, but this is my talk. So I'm choosing the ones that I choose to believe that are deep in your heart tonight. Listen, here's the truth about descriptions and how we relate to one another. The truth is, how you describe me determines how you will relate to me. Your description of me reveals how you relate to me. Uh, the inverse of this is true. How I describe myself reveals how I relate to you. So if I was describing myself as a pastor, I'm, I'm relating what I do. This might be the relationship or the context of which I describe myself. But if I was describing myself to my family, I might describe myself as a dad. The relationship and the context matters. But how I describe myself reveals how I relate to you. And how you describe me reveals how you relate to me. Now, this is why I love autobiographies. I just love autobiographies as opposed to biographies. An autobiography, it literally the word means self is auto. Uh, life is bio and writing graph. Self-life writing. I love autobiographies because it's a story of you written by you. You get insight into people at a level that goes just beyond the facts, just beyond the opinions, just beyond the experiences. You get into the heart of the matter. I, I think one of my favorite questions whenever I've had the opportunity to do like an interview, if I'm job interview or if I'm interviewing someone, I'll often ask them this question. How would you describe yourself? Because I know how they describe themselves gives me a picture of how they relate to the world around them. So we're starting a brand new series, as, as Stephanie had mentioned, called I Am, Jesus as Described by Jesus. We're going to look firsthand of how he described himself. 
And there's some famous questions he asks in scripture. Did you know Jesus asked over 307 questions in the gospels alone? And for a man who had all the answers, that's a lot of questions. But those questions weren't for his benefit. Those questions were to lead us into deeper truth and to reveal maybe even some misconstrued and misconstructed truth. Two of the most famous questions he ever asked are found in Matthew chapter 16. The first question, he asked his group of disciples, he asked them this, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Oh, guys, what are they saying about me? How are people describing me? And they respond, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, and, uh, and, or one of the other prophets. What are, what are people doing when they're, when they're trying to get a sense of who Jesus is? Well, they're doing a comparative analysis. It's kind of like if someone's selling a house, a real estate agent will often do a comparative analysis of other houses to try to find an evaluation, to find a marker of what the house is worth. Or if you're selling a car, you, you look at an auto trader or some sort of mechanism to try to identify what is this car worth? Because it's only worth what you can sell it for. So it's not what I think, it's what, how, how does it comparatively uh, sit next to other things that are similar? So people have nothing to compare Jesus to. I mean, even the comparisons they make are just mere facsimiles of the person of Jesus. But they're grabbing hold of people who spoke with authority, John the Baptist, the prophets, and who did miraculous, defi uh, uh, human-defying, uh, miraculous events with great power. And so they look to Jesus and they're trying to figure out who he is. But Jesus goes further than this. He doesn't leave it with, what, what's everyone saying about me? How are they describing me? He makes it very personal. And this might be the most important question you ever answer in your entire life. He asks them this, but who do you say that I am? Okay, I, I hear what you're saying about what others are saying about me, but who do you say that I am? Because how you answer that question determines how you relate to the person of Jesus. It determines how you follow Jesus. It determines whether you bow a knee to Jesus. Is he your king or is he your follower? Is he your savior or is he your servant? Is he kind of just following you around in life, kind of cleaning up your messes behind you? Well, who is Jesus to you? I mean, so many of us get this kind of uh, it's almost like a, a, you know, when, when I was a child, we used to go to a restaurant and, and you remember when, well, I guess they do it all the time now, but you had all the fountain pop there and it was free refills. And when I was a kid, that was rare because, you know, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> but we would take that cup and we would just take it and fill it with all different types of, we'd orange, Fanta and Coke and and Sprite and ginger ale, anything we could. We fill it up and we called it swamp water. And a lot of us develop a kind of swamp water picture of who Jesus is, kind of based from our religious background. We kind of get an idea of what we've learned in that religious background, or maybe our family of origin, how they related to Jesus becomes a little bit of the piece of how we relate to Jesus. And often our culture and world continues to frame our image and idea of who Jesus is. And we can often make Jesus into someone that, that really is blind to our own judgmentalism, <laughs> blind to our own criticalness, blind to our own sinfulness, blind to our, our unloving ways, but a Jesus who's super vigilant against our enemies, super vigilant against the things we don't like. 
we can construct a Jesus that looks nothing like Jesus. It has pieces that look as uh, similar, but it's not who Jesus is. So this series, we're going to suspend some of our prejudices and our biases and our preconceived notions so we can listen. Let those who have ears to hear listen to how Jesus describes himself. So in this series, we're going to look at a series of four statements Jesus makes. They're called I am statements, where he describes himself. And Pastor Jessica and Pastor Keith are going to help me in this series. And the first one we're going to look at is found in John chapter 8. And when Jesus uses this word, I am, as an introduction, all of his first century li listeners would have been a little upset, especially the religious people. And I'll tell you why. It hearkened back to Exodus, one of the, the second book in your copy of the Bible, where Moses, if you know the story, is in the wilderness and he encounters a burning bush that won't be consumed. It doesn't burn up. And out of that bush comes this voice. Can you imagine what that would have been like for you if you were out there? And God is asking Moses to go back to Egypt to set his people free. And Moses says, well, who do I say is sending me? And God says, tell them, I am that I am is sending you. I mean, boom. So when Jesus uses the I am statements, it ruffles the feathers of the religious leaders. In fact, if you read John chapter eight, it might be the most caustic chapter in, in the entire New Testament. Uh, the Pharisees are gunning hard for him, the religious leaders of the, of the day. But Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, what Jesus, when Jesus said this, his listeners would have known what he was talking about. You may have grown up in church and maybe you've heard this statement many times, I'm the light of the world. What was Jesus doing? He was pulling them back to the prophecies found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah talks about how the Messiah will be like a light to the world. In fact, in one portion in Isaiah, it says that the, that the light of the world will come from Galilee and go to all the nations. Incredibly prophetic. This is one of the, uh, such of the verses, uh, chapter nine, verse two. The people who walk in darkness, and that's all of us, we all walk in darkness, will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And of course, Jesus is relating that prophecy to himself, and he's trying to say, here I am, guys. Now, he's not the first person to show up in that first century uh, Judean culture and claim to be the Messiah or claim to be the light of the world. In fact, he's just in the string of a few of them. The last great would-be Messiah was a man named Simeon ben Kasibi, or ben Kasibi, Siba, not Ben Kenobi, but Ben Kasiba, who led a revolution in 32 to 35 AD against the Roman occupation. And uh, eventually uh, he was killed. Eventually the revolution was laid to rest. But the people of Israel called him the great light sent from heaven. But Jesus is saying something quite strong here. He's saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I'm not just a light in the world. I am the light of the world. Exclusive claim. He's saying that I'm the light of the world. This is a crystal exclusive claim. That's what theologians would call it. A crystal exclusive claim is one where he, he claims exclusivity, that I am the light, not a light, not one of many lights, I am the light of the world. I'm the preeminent light. 
There are no other lights. <laughs> I am the light. And this ruffles our modern feathers because we don't like exclusive claims, do we? Exclusivity seems unkind. Like Jesus goes further. In John chapter 14, verse six, he makes claims like this. He says, I am the way, not a way, the way, and the truth, not, not one of many truths, I'm the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, say this word with me, except through me. Again, that exclusive language, doesn't that rub you the wrong way a little bit? It doesn't, it doesn't feel generous, does it? It feels like it's a little bit like a closed off and it kind of bothers us a little bit because exclusivity feels offensive until it does it. I, my partner, Shelly, my wife, uh, we're in an exclusive relationship. I mean, I love you. I love a lot of people, but you're not included in that. It's an exclusive relationship. And it's actually... That exclusivity is very powerful. As Andy Stanley talks about it, Pastor Andy Stanley, when it talks about marriage, he says this, that intimacy is fueled by exclusivity. It's when it's, you're in an exclusive relationship that you can truly experience true intimacy. Intimacy, as I heard one author years ago say, means into me see, that someone can see you, all that you are, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. And they're not going anywhere. They accept you just as you are. That's how you get into an intimate relationship. Well, you can't have that level of intimacy without exclusivity. Exclusivity keeps that safe that you can walk into intimacy. Now, he doesn't end though there. But Jesus is making a radical claim here. And the people listening would have heard it. And we hear it in 2022. He's saying he alone is the way to God. But he doesn't leave it there. I love how he continues. He says, the light of the world. I am the light, exclusive, of the world. Now, this is what theologians call crystal inclusive. What is he saying? Well, who's in the world? Everybody. Everyone's included. Everyone is welcomed. It's incredible. There's incredible inclusivity cloaked in that exclusive statement. It's incredible, beautiful. And he goes on to say this, whoever, meaning again, anyone, wherever they're coming from, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Now, this is really important, this idea of following Jesus. Uh, often we make a lot of believing in Jesus, and, and that's a starting point, a belief in Jesus. But following Jesus is the evidence that Jesus is in us. So it's not so much just believing him, it's following him. So whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when you hear claims of the Messiah and the Savior and discussion of Jesus, these two things are often associated, light and life. Light and life. Now, this is kind of, this is really cool. Jesus is claiming that he is the light of real life. He's the light that leads to real life. In other words, the deepest longing in every one of us is to truly live, to truly be alive, to be, to live our fullest and most authentic lives. And most of it, we pursue that agnosium as humans on this planet. 
When we, with reckless abandon, we pursue. We just want to feel alive. I love how the second century church father, St. Irenaeus, says this. He says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Not just physically fully alive. Emotionally fully alive. Intellectually fully alive. Spiritually fully alive. That's the glory of God to see a human no longer uh, uh, diminished or damaged by sin, but fully alive. Now, this is really cool. This is really cool because all kinds of things promise us real life in this world. Material things promise us real life. Our career paths can make lots of promises about real life. Your relationship status can make promises about leading you into a place of real life. And Jesus is in competition for our attention. Now, he's not competing for it, but these things are competing for our attention and they're rivals to Jesus' attention here. And Jesus is promising his followers that he is the light to help them live the most, most full, fulfilling and authentic life that there is. So let me summarize this statement. That it would simply be this. Jesus is the exclusive light, which is inclusively for everyone. <laughs> I love that. He's the exclusive light the way, the truth, and the life that is inclusive for everyone. Now, this has incredible implications for us because the Bible would describe that we're living in dark times, a dark world. I don't think you needed the Bible to tell you that, actually, because we see our news feeds. So, so what's going on here? Well, a lot of us frame life by what is happening to us, what is happening to us and what is happening around us. And we, we begin to... The, we begin to despair over life and when we see what's happening to us or happening around us. Listen, I know that you're listening right now. There are some of you that things are just happening to you and you're, you're grappling with it. For many of us, isn't it true in this era of social media and news feeds and everything, the things that are happening around us feel like they're happening to us though, don't they? And in that era, we can begin to despair. We can begin to see that there are problems we can't solve. How many know that? Guns in the U.S. and gun problems around the world. Our systemic racism that has led to the murder and, and, and diminishing of human beings. We've seen, we've seen sickness and you may be grappling with that. So I've, I've talked to many people who are, who are struggling with government and government policies and all these things they can't control. I, I watch people struggle with COVID and, of course, all the, the things we've been through in the last couple of years. You know, there are problems we can't control. There are people we can't control, aren't there? <laughs> you know, so partners and spouses in life and, and children and grandchildren and work colleagues and, and, and friends. And if you could only control them, life would be that much better, wouldn't it? But we can't control them. And then we have expectations that we can't meet. Now, if I could look in the mirror, I'd have to admit that I'm really the problem I can't solve. I try, but I'm the problem I can't solve. That I'm the person that I can't control. Apostle Paul talked about that. Sometimes he does what he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do what he wants to do. Do you ever lack self-control? And then, if I'm going to be honest, that often I can find myself setting expectations for others that they can't even live up to. For many of us, 
Life is not wonderful. Life is not wonderful because of what is happening around us. But life can be wonderful because of what has happened. Not what is happening, but what has happened. So what has happened? Well, God sent his son into this world so that you and I could center our lives on him. That when I center my life on him and you center your life on him, all of a sudden we are now find our lives centered on something stable. We can find our lives centered on something hopeful. We can center our lives on something with meaning and purpose. We can find and sense that I don't need to fear, even though there are things to fear in this life, because I've centered my life on the person of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is full of life. He is full of life. Not because, and friends, it's not because of who's with us in our lives and who's not with us and what's happening to us in this life. It's because of who is for us in this life. And Jesus said that I am for you. He's with you. He's for you. And the darker things get and the more difficult things get and the more complicated things get, we need to focus on the light of life in this world. There are four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and many of you may be familiar with them. The first three, are the theologians call it the synoptic gospels. They're very similar. They're very similar in the flow. They have very similar stories in them. John's gospel is very, very different. Very different. And we're going to focus on that, John chapter 8 and John chapter 1 today. Well, John, John's gospel was written uh, when he was a very, very old man. Uh, it's interesting, when you open the opening pages of John's gospel, there's no birth story like there is in Matthew, Mark, Luke. Instead, John just focuses on the significance of Jesus' arrival. He's a very old man. And John's the same person that reduced reduced God down to one word. (laughs) You know, he was thinking of all the ways. How do I simplify? How do I clarify? How do I explain clearly who God is? And he came up with God is, God is love. What, What a definition, friends. Anytime this scripture is used, to perpetuate hate or brokenness or to diminish people or hold them down, uh, you know you're not reading it right because this is an expression of God as love. God is love, he said. And one of the things that's amazing is John says some pretty incredible things in his gospel. All the while, he's experienced a lot of loss, a lot of significant setbacks, He's a very old, very old man, and maybe some of you are, are aging a little bit today, and you might be able to relate to John here. He's experienced a lot of loss. He's lost most of his friends. He's lost family members. He's even lost his whole society and culture. See, John was alive when Nero, the emperor Nero, sent General Vespian into the promised land, into Judea, Galilee and Judea, and General Vespia started in Galilee and went south and he murdered thousands of Jewish people and then captured thousands of them and enslaved them and sent them off to Rome. John was alive to see that. John was there and he was alive when Vespasian left his son Titus outside Jerusalem, the holy city, to siege it. And for seven months, the city that he loved, the city that had marked some of the most significant moments in his life, Jerusalem, the holy city, he watched it for seven months be starved. The plagues that would come in, the disease that would come until it finally fell. 
And at the end of the Jewish war in 70 AD, John would have known, whether he saw it or not, we don't know, but he would have known that the temple was burned to the ground and it's never been restored since. He would have saw all that. Uh, They estimate in that time about a million Jews may have been slaughtered by the Romans then. And over 200,000 of them uh, sent off into Rome for captivity and slavery. By the time John writes his gospel, his friend Peter has been executed by Nero. His friend Paul. Paul's dead, executed. So John knows loss, and I wonder if you can relate to John. Maybe, maybe as you get, have gotten older in life, maybe the world that you knew and loved because it was comfortable and you understood it, maybe you feel like that world is just gone. <laughs> you know, you can feel that with changes, whether it's in a church or anything. You start to feel those feelings like, like, like wow, everything I've known has gone away. And if we're not careful, it leads to some grief and sadness, and it can even sour us if we're not careful. It begins to encroach on our lives and it causes us to shrink back. It causes us to get a little more suspicious, a little more angry, and even somewhat depressed. Here's the good news. John knows how you feel. John knows exactly how you feel. And John is an incredible example to us here. Through all the bloodshed, all the destruction, John never lost faith. In fact, at the end of his gospel, he says this in John, uh, the ending, John chapter 20, he says this, but these are written, and these were all the marvelous stories, the miraculous stories. He gives seven signs in, in the gospel of John and all his teachings. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have, can you say that word with me? Life in his name. Remember, light and life are associated with one another throughout the Gospels when it refers to the Messiah or our Savior. So despite what John has seen, and I'm sure you've seen a lot, despite what John has experienced, and I'm sure you've experienced a lot, at the end of his life, John still believed that Jesus was the source of some kind of life that went beyond the physical life that he was living. And that's true then, and it's true today. But he begins his gospel, again, not with the birth announcements of Jesus, but he begins his gospel quite differently. John reminds us that when Jesus was born at that time, it was a very, very dark time and can certainly feel like that in this present age. He begins his words in John chapter one, verse four, he says, in him, meaning Jesus, was life. He wants us to know if you're looking for life, striving for life, chasing life, life is found in him. In him was life. And he goes on to say that, say this, and that life was the light for all mankind. Man, this was significant when John said this because the Messiah in a Jewish mind was this. They thought the Messiah would come and be a light locally, regionally for, for Israel. But Jesus comes and he's not just a light to the nation of Israel. He's a light to all mankind. Again, the inclusivity of Christ. Everyone is welcome. Everyone can come. Everyone is welcome into my presence. So he goes on to say, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. 
You know, the darkness would have been overwhelming for John in this moment. He would have thought about how evil seemed to be in control, how evil seemed to be triumphing. You see, he didn't live long enough to see the emergence of the, of the church and eventually that would become the, the religion for the Roman Empire. It would take over. He saw none of that. What he saw was all the setbacks. And maybe, friend, you find yourself a little bit in those setbacks right now. So he, he sees that maybe light seems to be being extinguished by darkness. Darkness seems to be in control and triumphing. The, his, his beloved nation of Israel had been devastated. His friends had been killed. Uh, good had been trampled on. In spite of the fact that everything, everything he had grown to love and held his significance began to fade away and was destroyed. It was gone. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not, and I think he paused here. I, I think he, he, he just questioned, he thought, what's the, what's the right word? What has the darkness not been able to do? And I think, I think everyone understood that light exposes things that are hidden in the dark. But he's going further in his explanation here. He wants us to understand that, that there's a light that shines in the darkness and as hard as darkness has tried to extinguish it, to blow it out. As hard as darkness has tried to snuff it out, overwhelm it, cease it, surround it, imprison it, as hard as our world and culture has tried to blow out the light, he says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It has not overcome it. Oh, but John, don't you see what's going on in your world? Oh, you, you have limited vision then. Darkness has not been able to overcome the light. This from a man who would have gotten the news that your good friend Peter has been executed. Paul, executed. The temple, destroyed. He's probably the last apostle alive here. He's familiar with bad news, very familiar with bad news. And in spite of everything this world has tried to do to eradicate the light of life, the darkness has not overwhelmed it. It has not put it out. Caesar couldn't put it out. Tiberius couldn't put it out. Uh, Nero couldn't put it out. The destruction of the temple could not put it out. The death of Jesus could not extinguish this light. And this is the same John that peered into the empty tomb. This is the same John that ate breakfast on a beach with Jesus, risen from the grave. Oh, he knew. He knew that throw your best at us. You cannot extinguish the light of life. This is John who is absolutely convinced that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how deep the heartache, no matter what we face in this life, no matter how extreme the fear may be, no matter how deep the depression may be, there is a light that shines in the darkness and no amount of darkness and no type of darkness can extinguish the light. Friends, this is good news. Jesus is life and light that overcomes the darkness. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was giving words of hope for everyone that would listen to his words. 
He's the light of the world. And he offers us life and light. I want to pray with uh, two groups of people. I'd love to pray with those that maybe want to make a decision to follow Jesus. You'd love to experience the light and life of Jesus, to experience that life that he promises, that he lead us into this authentic vitality, this life in its fullness, that we would truly become alive. And what a promise. And you know, just fair warning, (laughs) when you choose to follow Jesus, it's not like everything gets better in your life. It's like everything changes inside of your life as you begin to follow him. And I want to pray for those of us who might be followers of Jesus, but to be honest with you, maybe we've not been looking at the light very much. Maybe we've been more interested in the dark. Maybe it's the negativity in this world. Maybe it's the, the brokenness in this world. And it's overwhelmed us. Darkness seems to have overwhelmed us. We're going to ask Jesus to help recalibrate us so that we see him high and lifted up. I'm going to invite you into a place of prayer. And if you would like to pray with me to follow Jesus, I'd love the privilege of praying with you. I'm just going to say some words. And if they match or mirror what's in your heart, you go ahead and say them with me. Whether in your head or with your mouth, just say them with me. And you can know what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Father, we thank you for not abandoning us, but sending your Son to look for us. We thank you that despite what might be happening around us, despite what might be happening to us, God, we know that you are for us and you are with us. So Jesus, we come to you today and God, I ask you to fill my life with your spirit. Fill my life with your life and your light. Forgive me for all the things that have created a barrier between me and you me and others. God, I want to live a life that looks like you, a life of love. So God, I pray that you would forgive me and I choose to follow you today. And God, I pray that your light would guide me and your life would fill me. I pray this in Jesus' name. And then I just want to pray for those of you who may be followers of Jesus, but maybe the lights have been off for a while. (laughs) I mean, when, when you look at your life right now, it, it's through the malaise of just maybe your, your, your TV and, and the news feeds or, or your social media feeds and all the angst and anger and difficulty in this world. And, and those are all symptoms, friends, of brokenness in this world that needs to be addressed. But we can't afford to take our eyes off the light of the world because in him, we move and have our being. So maybe pray with me. Father, we come to you today. And God, we ask for a fresh revelation of your light and your life. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We choose in this moment to lift him up. God, would you let your light expose what's hidden in the dark in our hearts, in our minds, in the world around us so that we can address those things. God, we ask for your light to lead us into all truth. And God, we pray that we would truly feel the, that you're, you would fill us with your life, the abundant life you, you've called us to live as followers of you. We are not perfect, but you are. Oh, we walk with a limp, but you sustain us and carry us. So God, fill us with your life now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.